Hello, I'm Jesse Single, the host of Single-Minded Conversations, the companion podcast to my newsletter, Single-Minded, which you can read at jessesingle.substack.com. For today's episode, I spoke with Patrick Forscher, an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Arkansas and the head of the Group Disparities Lab there. I first spoke with Patrick in 2017 when I wrote a long article for New York Magazine about the weaknesses of the implicit association test, an extremely popular psychological tool used to ostensibly diagnose individuals' levels of implicit bias or the extent to which they hold unconscious associations that cause them to act in a discriminatory manner without their knowledge or intent. Thanks in large part to the IAT, implicit bias has become the go-to explanation for all sorts of discriminatory outcomes in society. We're at a point where whenever something sexist or racist happens, you will see people pin it on implicit bias, even if the details are fuzzy or only questionably applicable to the idea of implicit bias. Patrick's a very intelligent critic of this tendency, and my interview with him made me a bit more skeptical not only of the IIT, but of the importance of implicit bias in explaining societal outcomes more broadly. During the interview, there seemed to be some sort of light bubbly noise being produced by Patrick's mic. I think it's barely noticeable, but I just wanted to point it out so I don't get emails from you guys about it. That's all I got by way of introduction for this episode. I hope you enjoy the interview. I hope you continue to send me feedback. And please, if you enjoy these interviews, consider becoming a paid subscriber to Single Minded. Even at this sub-basement level of production quality, it does take time and effort to produce these episodes, and the reason I can do so without feeling like I'm leaving too much other work on the table is because of my paid subscribers. So if you're already a paid subscriber, thank you very much. If you aren't, imagine the Buddhist concept of nirvana, but times a trillion. That's more or less what it's like to subscribe to the paid version of Single Minded, so I hope you'll consider it. Okay, so I'll obviously, I'm just going to do like a little music in this middle part. Um, Yeah. Uh, do you need an actual break, or do you just want to keep going? I'm good. All right, hold on. I'm just—I'm a little bit sick. I'm gonna disgustingly blow my nose. I apologize. Oh no worries. So yeah, I think our uh, our first interaction was a couple of years ago when I was writing about the implicit association test. Uh, that's a paper you've been working on with some others forever, and it's finally coming out, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, for those of you who, or for those of the listeners who aren't familiar with the academic process, you know, we have this whole system of peer review, and that can take a long time on top of the length of the project themselves. So on this project, it was a really large project. I've been working on it, I figured out, for more than a quarter of my life. So I'm, I'm pretty happy to be finally seeing the end of it. And, and what's sort of the, uh, the elevator pitch version of what you guys did and what you guys found? Yeah, so we were interested in what creates change in um, implicit bias as measured by these tasks that we have for assessing implicit bias. Um, so we basically looked for all the studies that we can find that use the gold standard research method for assessing whether you can change implicit bias, and that would be a randomized controlled trial. You have some people do one thing, other people do another thing. You randomly assign which procedure the people do, and that allows you to see whether the uh, procedure that you're testing uh, causes change in implicit bias. And on top of that, we also uh, looked at whether the studies assessed um, explicit bias, that would be what people say about their attitudes towards black people or whatever it is that's being assessed, and behavior. Um, So that allowed us to also test whether these procedures that might be creating change in implicit bias are also creating change in other things like people's beliefs or their behavior. And um, we found a lot of stuff. It's, it's a really complicated project. Um, we had 400 different studies, but the top line results are probably that there are a lot of procedures out there that can change people's responses on implicit tasks, that those measures of implicit bias. Um, but there, there are a lot of limitations to the studies that people have done. Um, so for one thing, you might want to know, like, um, if you create change in, in implicit bias, does that change persist? Well, it turns out uh, only about 15% of the studies that we found 
um, bother to measure implicit bias at 24 hours or or after the the procedure the um, they the participants did the procedure so we can't even tell whether these procedures that create change in implicit bias um, are doing anything lasting. Um, you probably also would want to know, okay, if there is a change in implicit bias, does that actually change people's behavior at all? Well, it turns out that, again, a, a very small percentage of all studies um, uh, bother to measure behavior. I think it was, it was about 15%. Um, so we're sort of just scratching the surface of these questions, but if we just look at the evidence that we have, um, there's almost no evidence that uh, these procedures create change in behavior. Um, and the types of behaviors that are often assessed are, are not really the kinds of behaviors that you'd want to change by through a procedure that changes in, uh, implicit bias. So we're not talking about behaviors like um, you know, the probability of hiring a black person. We're talking about behaviors like, does someone choose to sit closer to a black person or farther away from a black person? Pretty far divorced from practical applications. I, that, that's something I realized when I was first writing about the IIT is it, it sounds like we have very few good, for lack of a better word, laboratory tests for racism. And, and it's always gonna be the case that a significant percentage of studies take place in the lab. Like you can only do so many ambitious audit studies where you, you send out, you know, similar resumes or whatever. I, I take it you're somewhat underwhelmed by measures like whether you sit closer to a white person or a black person, or is it more you're just not convinced they have enough real world application? Um, yeah, I am underwhelmed. You could make the argument that um, perhaps sitting close closer to a black person is you know, maybe it's the first step to creating a better interaction. But on that measure in particular, th this is a measure actually that's used a lot in laboratory studies that um, examine racial issues. It's often used as a measure uh, sort of close to discrimination, but like seating distance is kind of ambiguous. If I, if I sit further away from someone, I might be showing them respect because I don't want to crowd their personal space. If I sit closer to them, that in some contexts, that can mean that I want to create a more intimate conversation, a more intimate environment. So I, on that measure in particular, I'm not even convinced that it does anything close to measuring something like discrimination. And unfortunately, in a lot of laboratory experiments that are about racial issues, this is the kind of measure that gets used. We have we have very little idea of whether that kind of measure is assessing anything that's important for something like discrimination. Now, as I, as I wrote in the article um, from a couple of years ago, I was sort of working on a, um, an early version of your paper. What I said, and I'd, I'd be curious to get your response to is given the fact that the connection between IAT scores and behavior is so weak at the individual level in the first place, we shouldn't necessarily be surprised that if you change someone's IAT score, it doesn't have much effect on behavior, right? Yeah, I, I mean, so there are a couple questions um, sort of embedded in, in your question. Um, the, the first one is, what is it, when we're thinking about um, issues related to implicit bias, what actually is the ultimate thing that we wanna change? So I think most people would not want to change scores on something like the IAT. The IAT, the implicit association task, this is the most popular um, measure for assessing implicit bias. But the, the way you uh, assess the IAT is you ask people to press buttons on a computer. And I don't think um, activists who are interested in issues that might be related to implicit bias actually want to change people's button responses they want to change like hiring discrimination. So that, that's one level on which you could think about this question. What is the ultimate thing that you want to change? Um, even if you're focused on behavior and like the big um, consequential behaviors like, I don't know, police shootings or hiring discrimination or ensuring that uh, people get better medical care, each of those different domains of behavior 
has its own set of issues. And personally, I'm not convinced at all that you should take the same approach for ensuring fair policing that you would take to in, ensuring that people get quality medical care. Those are very different contexts, and I, the problems I think, are very different. I think that's what always struck me as um, sort of overly optimistic about the IAT itself, this idea that this one average uh, difference in reaction time between black and white stimuli or whatever else run through an algorithm that generates a score, that that can really predict not just my racist or non-racist behavior in one sort of situation, but in all sorts of different situations where we would expect all sorts of different types of cognition and psychological mechanisms to go on. It, that's sort of a version of what you're saying, right? Like these are just different situations require different sorts of interventions. Yes, uh, I think so anyway. I think it's, um, there's a, a temptation to reduce these problems down to things that are easily graspable um, to be able to point to a score and say, aha, this score tells me that there's a problem, and if I change the score, I'm changing the problem. Um, it's, it's, a very, it's very tempting to get into that kind of reasoning. And I think that might be part of the reason why people glom on to the IIT so much, because it, it gives the, the appearance of being um, ultra-scientific and it's simple because you just do the procedure and it tells you something. Um, and from the perspective of someone who's like, I don't know, at a company, they're a hiring manager and they want to tackle the problem of hiring discrimination. Um, and they really genuinely want to do that, uh, but they don't know where to start. If you have this test that uh, purports to tell you what the problem is, um, it really simplifies the situation and it means that you don't have to deal with all of the complexities that might be at play to, you know, the, the true causal process that's creating hiring discrimination. So I, I think that it's really tempting to glom onto this measure and that might explain some of its um, popularity. Yeah, back in uh, 2017, you, you told me, and I'm quoting, I think from an email you sent me, the problem is that implicit measures and the IAT in particular became a critical part of a political narrative about why disparities between social groups exist in the United States. Thus, claims about implicit measures became, to a certain extent, political claims, not just scientific claims. My interpretation of that is you're saying, ideally, we could, to a certain extent, decouple the two questions of like whether an individual is serious about tackling racism and bias and whether the IAT works as advertised. And those two questions have sort of gotten melted together a little bit. Yeah, that's a really smart quote. <laughs> I don't remember writing <laughs> good, that, but good job. Good job, man. Yeah, um, I mean, it. What I uh, what I think I intended to to mean there, it, it is somewhat related to this idea that the implicit bias is, has this sort of uh, cognitive appeal. It, it's, it simplifies things. It makes it easier to think about them. Um, but another thing that's hap has happened to the IIT, and that's that um, people have woven um, the concept of, of implicit bias and the IIT as the, one of the more popular measures to assess implicit bias into this grander narrative about what the world is and its state. and um, this grander narrative of like, this is the problem that we want to focus our energy on. So if you attack, or if you're perceived to be attacking um, part of that narrative, um, it it's very easy to say, well, you're not part of my um, my political tribe and the the people like me. You're you want different political aims. Um, and it, it, it's very easy to dismiss the claims about that might be based on scientific evidence as um, a, a political attack. Um, yeah, I, um, I, I yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. The um, Starbucks incident, I, I thought was a striking example of that because it, it really showed the extent to which this has become the go-to explanation for anything that appears to be um, a racially discriminatory outcome. Like, we don't know that it was actually implicit bias that drove that outcome. It could have been explicit bias. She could have been having a bad day, but just it, it showed the sort of success of the meme that everyone, including Starbucks itself, immediately said, yep, that right there, that's implicit bias. 
That's right. Um, that's a that's a really good example. Um, I mean, scientifically, um, if you read papers about implicit bias or about implicit measurement, implicit bias has a, a pretty narrow meaning. Um, it means a, an association between concepts, um, and that that association doesn't have to be something that you personally believe. Um, it's like I said, that's a pretty narrow meaning. It, it's not even a meaning that has anything to do with a particular behavior. It's it's about people's thought processes, the cognitive processes that connect one concept to another. But um, out there in the world, uh, implicit bias has taken on well, a lot of different meanings. Um, I'm not even sure I could pin down what exactly people mean when they say implicit bias. I think they mean a, a sort of grander worldview about the state of the world and the, the cause of disparities, and that is pretty far removed from the scientific meaning. So it makes it pretty difficult to have public conversations about um, what the scientific evidence says, uh, because people take those, converse, those conversations to mean something grander about a particular worldview that's associated with liberalism. Well, and the other thing that I think might make the conversation harder is that there is now this i mean look no one no one's becoming a billionaire off the implicit association test but there is this whole network of people who benefit from it like like you said if you're an hr manager in an office you can provide the iit to everyone and then you've sort of ticked that box and the creators of the iit you know do service consultants and they sell it to police stations and to ngos i, I guess i'm you know i'm working on a book partly about debunking bad science and i'm curious whether when a scientific idea is so tightly married to sort of real world agendas and real world stuff and people are benefiting from it i i feel like that could slow down the process of it either being debunked or if you think that's too strong language for the it at least having the biggest boldest claims get pared back a little bit do you think that's something worth worrying about yeah, maybe. Um, a strange thing about the about implicit bias and um, implicit measurement is that there's a lot of really good science on uh, the implicit association tests in particular, but implicit bias generally. Um, like, I don't think the science is really. It's there. I, I definitely see some problems with it. So. In that meta-analysis that I mentioned, we found very few studies that uh, bothered to measure their outcomes over time. Um, we found very few studies that bothered to uh, measure uh, real-world behavior that activists at least might care about. And I do think that those are big problems. So I, I certainly see things to critique about, about the research. But there are also plenty of good studies that do take measurement seriously and do try to grapple with questions about what it is these things are really assessing and do they matter. So the science, there's a lot of good science, but the, I think the public conversation is, um, it's, it's very confusing, it's very confused. Um, lots of people mean lots of different things and it's very far removed from the evidence. And it's much more, the, the political conversation is much more certain than the scientific conversation is. I personally have very serious doubts about whether implicit bias, whatever that construct is, whatever that process is inside the, the mind, um, has much to do at all with uh, discrimination. I, I think it might not. I think the causes of discrimination might be uh, might generally be something different. Um, and I think that's a reasonable scientific position to take. Um, but that uh, that idea, those ideas, that assessment of the evidence is completely divorced or, or pretty divorced at least from the political conversation. That might have something to do with the fact that there are some vested interests in promoting a certain narrative about the state of the world. Um, I'm not really sure, but um, I think that might have something to do with it. So what's your current stance as someone who has been, <laughs> that's great. Did you say a quarter of your life or a third of your life you've been studying the IIT now? Uh, I guess close to a third. 
I think it's been like nine years. So and I'm after, 32. After these nine years, what's your sort of elevator pitch to a layperson who doesn't know much about this stuff? Like, how useful is the IAT and what should and shouldn't institutions use it for? Not not to put you on the spot or anything. Um, I think it's it's a useful scientific tool. I'm not sure that it's a useful public tool. I personally would not recommend its routine use in businesses or that um, regular people go to the uh, Project Implicit website to take it. Um, I, I do um, trainings on like uh, racial issues, inclusion, whatever. I, I've done trainings at um, uh, sheriff's offices and businesses and universities. And I no longer use the implicit association test in those trainings. And I do some. I do talk some about the fact that some some manifestations of uh, bias, some forms of discrimination, uh, might not be totally intended. That's that's a message that is often connected to the implicit association test. Um, but I, I I don't talk about the implicit association test uh, much anymore. Uh, instead, I, I really focus on the behaviors that uh, the setting in question wants to change. So, I mean, what are what sort of your average client in terms of like what kinds of behaviors they say they want to see changed? I often that's part of the problem. They don't know what they want to change. They just want to do something that's inclusive. So, uh, a lot of uh, recently, anyway, a lot of the work that I've done with sites. Um, when I when I've done this, so I don't want to. It's not like the primary thing that I do with my time, but a lot of what I have done is try to focus the clients on behaviors. Like, what are the what are the outcomes that they want to change? Uh, at what point would they say that their initiative has succeeded? How do they define uh, what success means and what is their goal as an organization? And um, it's maybe it's not surprising, but um, very often I find that uh, either people within the organization disagree or they just haven't asked that question. They just want to do something that's inclusive. I could see situations where it would it would be in their interest to not ask that question, because if their goal. I mean, not to be cynical about human nature, but like if you're a big company and your goal is to fend off potential future lawsuits and to broadcast that you're inclusive and you can just do a three-hour IAT training without asking those tough questions about what do we want to accomplish, what behavior are we trying to change, it just it almost seems easier not to put too much effort into it sometimes, right? I mean, we saw that happen at, at, the, at Starbucks. Um, they rolled out this big nationwide training and they very explicitly did not assess whether any outcomes that the training might affect. So I can't see into the, the minds of the executives that made this decision. But to me, it certainly looks like they, they just wanted to do the training. They wanted to have this um, big, showy um, uh, initiative. And uh, it was more of a public relations campaign than a, um, an effort to really change a particular outcome. Now, it still could be that that, that training um, had some positive effects, but the fact is we don't know. And something that I, I sometimes worry about with um, this kind of one-size-fits-all solution to uh, social interventions, you know, you, you do this implicit bias training and it, it fixes the problem, um, is that, so in, in medicine, there's a tr tradition of uh, testing for side effects um, for uh, unintended consequences of a, a particular drug. We don't have as much of that tradition um, among research on social interventions, but social interventions could have side effects or unintended consequences just like biological interventions can. So I, I sometimes wonder, like I've heard people say explicitly, well, it can't hurt, but maybe, maybe it actually does. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's, there's sort of a long history of, um, well, I can think of a couple examples. I mean, there's some research suggesting D.A.R.E., the anti-drug program, made kids more likely to do drugs. Although I think there's also research suggesting he just did nothing. There's also a, um, 
anti-PTSD program in the military where you thought getting people together and talking about their trauma would make it better that actually made it worse. And yeah, the, it's really weird that with the IAT, you wouldn't at least look into that possibility because the entire first wave of media coverage centered around how profound a psychological experience it is to take this test and be told you're secretly biased. Do you think people, is it just too much effort to try and look for neg- potential negative effects or is it, or do people just have a vested interest in not asking that question? What, what's going on with that? Well, I, I mean, it might not be nefarious. Um, so I think I, I've said this to you in the past, but a lot of people who get into um, social science research on like equity issues do so because they, they want to do social good. I mean, I'm like that. That's why I got into this. Um, so uh, uh, when you find a, uh, an intervention or a measure that you think might help you get to that goal, um, you, you want to take the op- optimistic perspective. You want to, um, you want to see the good that it can do, not the potential bad that it can do. Um, and I think that's quite natural. Um, and in, in social science, we don't have as much of a, a regulatory apparatus like um, there is in medicine uh, to ensure that if we do something on a big scale, that we're not doing something bad. Um, that, that's not to say that that kind of evaluation doesn't happen. Um, there's a, a bit of a tradition in economics of looking at unintended consequences. Um, so there's an, an interesting paper, for example, by a, an economist named Jennifer Doliak that looks at the uh, impact of uh, ban-the-box policies. So the idea is um, you hide uh, information from potential employers uh, about um, a past uh, criminal back- background until later in the application process. The, the idea is if you hide that information, you know, employers won't be using it against potential applicants, particularly, say, black applicants. Uh, that's often the worry with this kind of policy. Well, what she found in this in this paper anyway was that banning the box actually increased racial disparities because it uh, employers ended up, presumably anyway, employers ended up trying to guess whether someone had a criminal background and they uh, guessed in a racially biased way. So you get this kind of work sometimes in economics, not as much in uh, my home discipline, social psychology. But I, I think that is, uh, we should be asking these questions, especially if we want our work to have policy relevance. And I think most social psychologists do. So you, you it sounds like you're skeptical of the idea that implicit bias is this huge driver of racially discrepant outcomes. But are, are you still of the position that setting aside the IAT and how accurate it is at measuring implicit bias, do you still believe implicit bias itself? There's fairly strong evidence for it. I think the most famous example are these resume studies where you send out identical resumes, some with black sounding names, some with white sounding names. Um, my understanding is that A, there's always a pretty big gap in hiring and B, you can interpret that in a number of different ways, but it's always struck me as unlikely that that entire gap would be explicit bias. And which just to me leaves a pretty big slice. No one knows exactly how big that you could reasonably attribute to implicit bias. But I'm not sure that's right, that we uh, can interpret that as explicit bias, or even necessarily that it makes sense to draw a bright line between um, explicit bias and implicit bias as applied to outcomes like hiring. Um, That's why I prefer defining implicit bias as a cognitive process, because, you know, something that's happening inside one's head, um, because like you can't just look at someone's behavior and say, aha, that's implicit bias or aha, that's explicit bias. Uh, it may be with like some rare exceptions where someone's just saying a lot of racist things. <laughs> right. If you're saying, probably... I'm not, I have decided not to hire this person because they're Jewish, that would be explicit bias. Yeah. But I mean, most, most behaviors don't work that way. Right. Um, so like, we don't know with these, these audit studies where you're sending out resumes, it, it could be that, you know, most organizations have some hiring manager that um, doesn't doesn't like black people and they happen to be in a position of influence. 
you get enough of those organizations and that could cause the, the disparity. Or, you know, again, I, I don't think when you're talking about uh, people's intentions or their behavior that it really makes sense to draw a bright line between things that are intentional or unintentional. In some ways, I think that distinction distracts more than it helps. What about the uh, the famous orchestra study by The Economist where you put down a screen so that the people who decide who gets to join an orchestra can't see the gender and suddenly you get a big jump in gender parity? Uh, so that, that would work regardless of whether the cognitive processes that are causing uh, people to uh, give different ratings to men versus women are intentional or unintentional. Yeah. Oh, so, you're, so you're saying that we're, the, the risk here is that because the implicit bias meme is so sort of big and contagious, people are taking these ambiguous situations where there does seem to be some kind of bias, but it, it really could just be explicit. And moreover, that you can't always draw a bright line between the two. Yeah, I think it's better to focus on the outcome that you want to change. If you want to change, you know, evaluations of job applicants, then try to change the the uh, app, the evaluations of the job applicants. If you want to change uh, uh, policing behavior so that's more fair, try to change that. Um, it, I don't think that it's really necessarily that helpful to slap these concepts of implicit or explicit bias on, on, on top of those outcomes. One place where it could help just to give the counter argument is that um, sometimes it can be less threatening to talk about unintentional processes because you're not, you're, you know, framing it as if like, oh, no one's, uh, no one's really at fault, but here's, here are these processes that can you know, work against um, black people or, or whatever. And there is some truth to that. Um, but again, I, I, I worry that uh, telling people that they're not responsible for hiring disparities runs the risk of making people feel like they're not responsible for hiring disparities. <laughs> right. Where so they've gotten that idea? Yeah, right. So, you know, going back to the idea of unintended consequences, I, I'm not sure that that's entirely a, a, a great strategy. There might be some benefits to it just from a strategic standpoint, but, you know, I don't think it, um, I don't think the science necessarily says that we can uh, clearly distinguish between a behavior that's intended versus not. That's, it's, doesn't even necessarily make sense to draw a clear distinction between those. And there could be some unintended consequences. Let me ask uh, one more question about implicit bias, and then we'll take a quick break and, and come back and talk about some of your other research. Um, well, this is, is less a question. I just want to sort of run a scenario by you and see what, what you think. For obvious reasons, when people talk about implicit bias, hiring is a big part of it because hiring determines sort of who gets what. And I've had to hire a few times within journalism, and I, I have noticed that this pretty intuitive thing happens, which is you see a lot of applications, impressive applications from people from towns like where I'm from, from affluent suburbs, from well-oiled machines, where from a young age, kids have access to all the resources they need. Kids are sort of pushed gently down a path right toward college. You know, these are places where everyone goes to college. Everyone's parents are doctors and lawyers. And we, we just have every advantage. We didn't earn those advantages, but we have them. And those advantages help us generate impressive resumes. So I guess my concern is when you when you say that all the it's what's going on is discrimination at the site of hiring rather than a more structural or societal discrimination in terms of who gets what sort of early education and nutrition and just all that complicated stuff to me it it, it sort of backgrounds that important question of of how we treat 4 and 5 and 6 year olds and whether we're giving them a fair shake because you're suddenly putting all the onus on the person hiring and you're assuming that, you know, any discrepancies you see are the result of bias in the moment rather than bias going back for decades. Does that concern you? Does that make sense to you? Does, you seem like the kind of guy who would have some thoughts on this. Yeah, um, I, I think that's a really good point. So implicit bias is a psychological concept and psychologists are focused on the individual. So and that, from that perspective, it makes sense that if you're thinking about implicit bias, 
often you're zooming into the individual interaction that might lead to, that might be discriminatory or not, and the, the factors that might influence discrimination. But the psychological factors are only one piece of the puzzle, especially if you're talking about disparities between social groups, like people live within structures and they, you know, belong to groups. And there's, if you're talking about race in the United States, I mean, you just can't escape history. History is, is so important. It has uh, lingering consequences that are with us today. This was a, this was a slave country. Um, that's a really big deal. So those factors, I think, are incredibly important when you're thinking about, especially race in the United States. And um, I think implicit bias could play a role. It, it could be one manifestation of past history. It, it, you know, I'm not necessarily convinced that's a useless concept, but I do think, and I do agree with you, that there's some danger in having an overly individualistic and narrow focus especially when you're dealing with complicated issues like race in America. Yeah, I also feel like from the point of view of a, a hiring organization, I think in journalism, for sure, most outlets are not doing everything they could to sort of recruit from, you know, places that aren't full of kids from affluent suburbs, from from historically black colleges and universities, from black journalism organizations, but that stuff just it takes a lot of time and effort and it just I don't know I'm just worried about sort of easy way out syndrome where you give everyone an, an implicit bias training and and nothing ever changes but yeah maybe it's time for breaks at this point I'm just repeating back to you what you've already <laughs> said in a much more eloquent way <laughs> sounds good And we're back with Patrick Forscher. So, yeah, I did want to move on from implicit bias because you've done a lot of other research, including this really interesting study about sort of who gets academic research grants that went a little bit against the grain of how we we talk about discrimination in higher ed and academia, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, the the methods are fairly standard. The, the findings uh, could be construed as a little bit controversial. So what we did... There's this big conversation about potential bias in uh, the way that people get scientific funding. So the largest funder in the United States of um, especially biomedical research is the National Institutes of Health. Lots of scientists from all over the, the country basically write proposals like, we want to do this cool study. Here are some of the details. Read it. And um, if, you, if you think it's good enough, give us some money and we'll go and do the science. And the worry is, of course, that the people who are evaluating these grants, um, they're usually other scientists, might think that the, the science from, say, white male applicants is generally better than the science from black male or white female or black female applicants. And uh, that, that there might be bias in that process, that uh, the people who get the money, even though they're not necessarily doing better science, are white male and, and that they might uh, that that might lead to uh, unfairness in the general system of how science is funded. And that would be a huge problem. So the, the standard way of assessing for bias in this kind of uh, process is you get applications, so you, you get grant applications, and then you just change one thing uh, about the application. You, you change, say, the, the name of the scientist who's, who wrote the proposal. So think like 
some applications are, are supposedly written by someone named John Smith. Some are written by someone named, say, Jane Smith or Darnell Washington or Letitia Washington. So most people would be able to know, like, oh, probably the Jane Smith is a white female, probably John Smith is a white male, probably Darnell Washington is a, a black male. So the science is otherwise the same. The only thing that's different is the name on the application. Uh, we then sent those, uh, those grants out for re-review by groups of scientists, and um, we had them give evaluations of the grants. And uh, by comparing the the evaluations when they had the grants had a white male versus a white female, black male, black female PI, we could see, is that process biased? And um, what we found was it wasn't. Everybody got about the same rating and uh, our study was big enough. We had uh, 48 applications, 400 some reviewers that we could rule out what we thought would be uh, an amount of bias that we ought to worry about. So I, I think our study is able to say reasonably conclusively that at least this stage of the funding process is uh, relatively fair, at least towards these groups that we evaluated. Did you get any backlash for publishing that? Not for publishing it. So there's a growing movement in psychology of uh, posting early versions of your papers and soliciting feedback from, well, over Twitter or through generally through the internet. And uh, when we posted an early version of this, I, I think the most psychologists, uh, most people who like actually research bias as their day job, they, they had reasonable comments and you know some were critical, some were um, appreciative, but I, I didn't think that they were unreasonable. There were some reactions to the paper that I thought were a little bit unreasonable and a little bit personal in the end like it if you get called names on the internet welcome to the internet right um <laughs> right. it's it's not a huge deal but it wasn't pleasant i mean it, it was hard not to take it a little bit personally so you know we'll, we'll see how people react to it now that it's published i i thought at the time like the little minor blow up is probably not all that consequential in the grand scheme of things but it was unpleasant for sure uh no one's ever gotten mad at me on twitter so i just i, <laughs> I, I can't i can't relate to that at all unfortunately yeah, of course uh do you think that having because just having written and thought more and more about sort of the sociology of science and possible points of bias i feel like i'm pretty sympathetic to the claim that papers that I do think it seems like sometimes a higher standard of evidence is demanded for articles that do go against certain kinds of narratives. Do, do you think there's any reason to think that might be true? Or, I mean, am I just sort of spouting off here? Um, it, it could be. It's a complicated question, and I don't think that there's a straightforward answer. Yeah, On the topic of uh, gender bias in particular, you know, it's not like we're the first people to have investigated gender bias in science. <laughs> um, certainly not. But, you know, I if I look at some of the papers that claim to have found evidence of gender bias, um, I see problems with many of them. And I, I, I wonder how, why people aren't more critical of them. So to be specific about this, there's a, a famous paper in, on grant evaluations that is really good, so I'm not going to be criticizing the method per se, but the interpretation. It's by a group of people led by Donna Ginther. They got access to, uh, so it, the National Institutes of Health is, is very protective of its data, but the, um, Ginther and her research group got access to a lot of information about grant evaluations and funding rates. And um, so it was kind of a rare data set, a rare opportunity. And um, they, they found uh, differences in funding rates, particularly for black applicants. So this isn't necessarily discrimination per se, because we don't necessarily know, you know, which grants were funded. Like we, we can't necessarily clearly say that this is evidence of discrimination, but that's often used to 
promote the claim that there is discrimination in, in the funding process. When it, you know, in fact, like if you take the, the black applicants who had a lower funding rate, like they, they could have had, say, a worse mentorship experience. Maybe they, and maybe that was uh, discrimination or, or, you know, we, we don't know necessarily what that difference in funding rate means. The difference between that study and um, a study like ours is that we took the same applications and just changed the names. So any difference in um, evaluations that we saw had to be due to discrimination in the review process. And the Ginther study cannot say that. So I, I look at the, the, you know, the study that we did um, and there are other, you know, similar kinds of uh, audit studies like we did, and uh, and the Ginther study, and like to me, it they're not inconsistent with each other, and they, it it paints a, a picture of of a pretty fair um, review process at the sort of the back end of um, uh, scientific funding, and you know maybe problems earlier in the process, or we don't know what's happening earlier in the process. But a lot of people have a different interpretation, and I think it's, you know, I, I wonder like what's causing this differences in, these differences in interpretation. Or um, there's a, another study that I, where I will criticize the method, where the the researchers wanted to know if ap applicants to to be a lab manager. A lab manager is like it's often like a a first stepping stone to having a scientific career. Whether uh, male applicants to lab manager positions have an advantage over female applicants. Uh, so they took one application and uh, sent it out. Uh, sent out two versions. Some uh, some scientists, uh, about sixty of them, got a male version of the application. Some scientists got a female version and they saw whether there were differences in funding rates. Now, the reason I, I emphasize that, you know, one application um, that got sent out that was changed is that, like, if you're drawing conclusions about this one study, your conclusions are limited to that one application. Like, you, you from a research design standpoint, you'd want lots and lots of applications because applications look very different and people have different qualifications. And you, you probably want to know if there is gender bias, does it, like, does it hold across all applications or, or does it hold just for this one application? Or, um, you know, the, the number of scientists who did this evaluation um, was also very small. It was about 120. Um, and, and yet this paper has been cited hundreds and hundreds of times and it's found its way into policy documents. And um, it's one of the uh, fairly famous papers purporting to show gender bias uh, in, in STEM. And um, from my standpoint, as, as a scientist, like, I think that evidence is pretty weak, frankly. So, you know, that's one instance where I do have questions about the evaluation of science and whether people are, you know, using all of their critical thinking skills when they're evaluating this, this paper. Yeah, my own sort of uh, version of that is... Uh... <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not. I'm not going to make you say a word about about gender dysphoria. But um, there's this sort of wide ranging literature on the question of how stable kids' gender identities are, and it's become this politicized thing where if you're, you know, good and have liberal views on this, you say that um, gender identity is just as stable as sexual orientation. You're born this way. People who have a more complicated take on it are seen as sort of more politically suspect. And I've been shocked at the extent to which weaker studies that seem to show gender identity is totally stable will get cited so much more than much stronger studies that, uh, you know, show a more complicated picture. So I, I figure if it's going on there, it's probably going on in other areas too. And it sounds like what you just described uh, is an example of that. Yeah, it, it very well could be. You know, it's, the funny thing is that I think when people give a close reading of the, these studies, they like, it's not like, it's not like everybody who reads these studies is doing a bad job of evaluating the science. If, if people read closely, you know, they're able to spot the, the flaws. But uh, when it comes to like sort of broader communication, um, people, you know, they, they're searching on the internet, they see a study that says in the abstract that it finds gender bias. And they're like, cool, um, this proves my point. I'm, and they can write their op-ed or post their, make their Twitter post. 
and it's really tempting to do, like I'm sure I've done this myself, but I, for scientists anyway, I think we can expect a, a higher standard of, of uh, critical thought. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction that I, maybe when I was laying out my complaint I missed, it's like most people who are interfacing with the scientific literature, they go in already believing X and they're not looking for evidence for anything but X. Uh, so that could explain why certain things get more cited than other things. Yeah, I mean, scientists do this too. Um, if you're doing a, a lip review, so there's like, you know, the first part of the paper where you're sort of talking about prior work and the last part of the paper where you're trying to broaden out to other studies. You, you know, sometimes uh, scientists, and I include myself in this, are, are careful and they they read closely and they really dig into like what the differences are between these studies. Can we trust this piece of evidence? But sometimes you're in a hurry and you uh, end up taking shortcuts. And I've done this. So it's much easier to not read closely and to just sort of find the citations that support your points and leave it at that. And uh, this is a, a part, at least in psychology, maybe in other scientific fields too, there's not nearly as much scrutiny about, of um, whether you're citing work fairly, just because it would take so much time to read all of these, you know, 50, 100 papers that are cited in an article and figure out whether the citations are, are fair and whether the article actually supports your point. And I'm sure this, this, this problem is not unique to science. It um, has to happen in a lot of places, journalism included. Okay, one more, one more question about bad science before we finish on a more hopeful note. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the problem of overhyped press releases and misleading coverage, media coverage of science. The, in my book, I argue that researchers and universities are aware that there's an appetite for sexy counterintuitive findings and they sort of release misleading press releases as a result and journalists meanwhile we recognize that articles about these studies get a lot of attention and it's just created this sort of all these perverse incentives does that strike you as a credible account or is there anything you would add to it um yeah i, I think it, it could be a problem there are a fair number of there are a lot of researchers actually that i think are just motivated to understand a particular topic. So they're not necessarily looking for press, but there are certainly some researchers who do that, who are looking for press. Um, and um, there's, uh, there's some interesting research on this very problem actually, of uh, whether, what the source of distortions in popular press about science might be. Like, so you could, you could wonder, right, is it the case that scientists are describing their their findings in a distorted way and the journalists just sort of copy what the scientists say or are the journalists themselves um, looking for findings and then they hype the findings um, to the utmost degree to try to generate clicks um, to the New York Times or wherever it is that they're writing for. Um, so is the source of uh, distortions primarily the scientists or is it the journalists? And, uh, I, bl I blame the I blame the scientists entirely. <laughs> well, that's what this uh, one paper found anyway. Yeah, the, so this this one paper basically did look at a bunch of press releases of uh, health coverage. So these were all this was all health research, and they tried to figure out are these distortions coming from the press releases written by the university press office and maybe the scientists, or are they coming from the journalists? And for the most part, the journalists were writing what the scientists said. And I, I have a limited understanding of journalism, so you can correct me, Jesse, if I'm getting this wrong, but there's a lot of pressure to like produce content. So this sort of makes sense to me that you just sort of write from the press release because it's more efficient. Yeah, I think the problem is more the gap. There's often a gap between the press release and the study. I mean, as you know, and I think sometimes the person to blame is like the press officer. I've also, I've definitely seen instances in which one of the authors themselves will give a misleading quote for the press release. So basically our policy when I when I edited Science of Us at New York Magazine was we never, well, maybe at the start we did, but we basically adopted a policy of you never write off the press release. You have to actually read the paper itself. And I do think a significant chunk of the errors just come from uh, inaccuracies in the press releases themselves, which sounds like it lines up with what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, in my limited experience dealing with um, journalists like you, a lot of the journalists that I've interacted with have 
really wanted to do a good job. They've been thorough. Maybe the only reason I've had contact with them, you know, the only reason that they, I ended up talking with them was that they were doing their job as opposed to writing from some secondhand account. So I, I have actually really admired the critical thought and um, the interesting questions that uh, the journalists I've interacted with have, have asked. And I, I thought that they're actually like doing something that I couldn't, you know, taking um, pretty complicated ideas and writing them for a, a general audience. That's a tough skill and it's not a skill that all scientists have. And so I, I think there are lots of great journalists out there, but you know, I'm sure there are also journalists who aren't good and there there is an incentive to like generate attention, generate clicks. And I think some journalists probably feel that and some scientists feel that. Yeah, it's probably a bad time to bring this up, but I'm going to misleadingly edit this. So it sounds like you said the IAT is the most important, <laughs> most important invention since penicillin. So I hope you're okay with that. <laughs> sounds good, Jesse. It'll get me clicks. It will. Got to get those clicks. Okay, so we, we've talked a lot about problems because there are a lot of problems to talk about, but let's devote a little bit of the end of the show to optimism and potential solutions. My, my sense is the movement to sort of fix uh, inadequate science or less than rigorous science is really picking up a lot of steam, right? Yeah, I think this is a really exciting time to be a social scientist because um, a lot of the problems that we've been talking about, like we've known about them for a long time. This question of like how science should interface with politics, that's a longstanding question. Um, we haven't talked about as much about like some more general problems with how research gets produced, but you know, there's been a problem with like not having large enough sample sizes. You can't tell as much what's happening on a given research question with a smaller sample than with a larger one. In science generally, or social science in particular, there's a preference for positive results. So saying that there is a difference, that the IAT does matter, that your intervention to change implicit bias does have an effect, and there's a general bias against negative results. So saying that the, your intervention doesn't have an effect, that the IAT doesn't matter. And we've known about these problems for decades. They're not, they're not new and they've been talked to death. But what's different right now is that there's a real appetite to actually do something and stuff is happening. There's a, a broad movement across uh, a lot of scientists to try to figure out the, the particular incentives that create these problems and nudge the Senate, the incentives in the right direction, the direction that leads to good science and truth, as opposed to stuff that generates clicks. And so I see lots of changes. And you know, personally, this is one of the main things that keeps me in science, the idea that I can be part of a, a broader movement um, that will leave science more robust and more true than I left it. And I think a lot of people are, are have a similar outlook. What are a couple of the most important uh, changing norms you've noticed just in your fairly short so far career? Um, yeah, so there are some normative changes. So, for example, I think prior to maybe 10 or 20 years ago, there was a, a general idea that even if you had a study that had a small sample, if in that study, uh, that, if that study pr presented positive results, so it said that this uh, this intervention has an effect on something. There was an idea that that's the small sample is not ideal, but it's still an informative study. People are more willing to question those uh, smaller studies that even if they present positive results. But I think that the most exciting changes aren't on the norm side of things; they're on the incentive side of things. The the way that you know, what what ends up getting published in the research literature. And I'll give you a specific example to sort of ground this idea. In the traditional way of doing science, you so you do a study, um, you analyze the results, you write up a paper, and then you submit it to a journal. And the journal says, yes, we like it, or no, we don't. Maybe they don't like it, so you go to a different journal, and you go to a different journal, and you go to a different journal. And maybe there's a general consensus among journal editors that, like, positive results are, are more exciting and they get lead to more attention, more citations, they get uh, more press. And so positive results end up being the things that you see in journals. Well, what's changed is there's um, now a, a 
a particular way of doing science called a registered report. And the way this works is you think of a study that you think would be interesting and informative, and you figure out all of the, the ways you want to do that. You figure out the methods, and then you stop and you submit it. And so you haven't gathered any results yet. You don't know what the results are going to be. You just think this is a good study and here's why. And the editors say like, yeah, I think this is a good study or hey, maybe you should think about changing this because it would be, it would make the study even stronger. So you get feedback before you've collected any data. And um, then they either they say like, okay, we like this. As long as you do this, whatever the results are, we're gonna publish it. And that's such a radical change because there's no possibility of like seeing the results of a study thinking, I like these results because they agree with my politics, or I like these results because they agree with my theoretical outlook. It just divorces, it completely takes that, that possibility out of the picture. And that's really radical and really exciting. I think it's, this is one of those changes that could really change how science gets done and, um, how people are, what people think of as good science. Well, and it makes perfect intuitive sense because what what matters is asking the question. The publishability shouldn't, in some sort of cold, robotic, logical way, I know doesn't reflect how the real world works, but it, sh- it shouldn't matter what the result is. Either it's an interesting question to answer or it's not. And if it is, someone should run the study and find the answer, right? Yeah, I there's a quote from, I, I don't remember who it is. Um, it could be Chris Chambers, who's, one of the big proponents of this, um, the registered report model, that this is the way science ought to be. This is the way you, you learn about it in school when you're first thinking about science. Like you ask, a, you think about a question, you refine the, the ways that you want to ask the question, you make sure that other people agree, and then you go out and do it. And if it's a good question, it's a good question. It doesn't matter what the results are. So I I think it's, it's like a simple tweak, but it, it really could be a radical and positive change. And it's something that I find really exciting. Yeah. Chris Chambers also wrote a really good book. Uh, I'm obviously not directing this to you, but to readers called The Seven Deadly Sins of Psychology, A Manifesto for Reforming the Culture of Scientific Practice. Uh, yeah, the book had a pretty big influence on me and I would recommend it for anyone who is a, a nerd about this stuff like we are. Yeah, a- absolutely. It's a great book. I, actually, I, you know, I wonder if you could use the same kind of model and apply it to journalism, uh, science journalism anyway. Uh, you could hypothetically say, we're planning on running this, this study. Here are the details. What do you think? And uh, a journalist could say, like, I think this is a good idea. As long as you do it, I'm going to cover it. It would be kind of a radical flipped way of doing things. But, you know, maybe it could make a difference. Yeah, I love that. And it, I think it would, I love it. And I think it would never happen because... <laughs> <laughs> the way you pitch a story to an editor is like, this study found this. Isn't that exciting? Like if you pitched it as yeah. literally the, the first thing an editor would ask if I said, I want to write about the study, what did they find? Which I agree with you from a point of view of sort of science literacy and understanding the point of asking these questions. That's not ideal, but yeah, uh, it sucks because that's a great idea. It's just not, I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. <laughs> Man can dream. Exactly. Okay, just because we're running long, we're gonna we're gonna skip the traditional lightning round. But a final question is: uh, Let's talk a little bit. I mean, you run a whole lab dedicated to dealing with discrimination and racism, and we've talked a lot about stuff that maybe doesn't work or is overhyped. What's some stuff in the pipeline that you're excited about, or questions you think people should be asking? What what sort of the more rigorous future of this kind of research? Actually, the things that excite me the most are the changes to the structure of science. And um, that's a lot of where I'm spending my energy because I think um, changes there could not just have an impact on one area of science, but on a lot of areas. So one of the initiatives that I'm most excited about is um, uh, called the Psychological Science Accelerator. The the basic pitch is that, you know, traditionally in psychology anyway, um, most studies have been run by individual labs which limits the questions that you can ask and the breadth with which you can ask them. Because if you are just doing studies on undergraduates at the University of Arkansas, um, it's not going to be feasible to get uh, 1,000 people or 2,000 people for every study that you run. Maybe you have like one study over the course of 10 years that um, is that big. The, The idea behind the accelerator is that you have a bunch of labs from all over the world that are in the situation 
what if they all agree that, okay, we're going to devote some of our resources to like big, important questions that need to be answered in a big way. And uh, we'll do this. So if you, if, uh, if we generally agree that this is a question that's important, we'll sign on. And the, the reason that this is possible now is, is one, because there's so much energy in psychology to change things and to try out crazy things. Um, but two, we have the internet and the internet makes it a lot easier to coordinate, coordinate this kind of large scale project. Um, the side benefit, or one, I guess one of the primary benefits of, of this kind of model is that we have psychology labs from all over the world, not just in the United States. And there's been this lingering problem in psychology of basing too many of our conclusions on undergraduates from the United States who are mostly white. Well, if you have labs from all over the world, that's another problem that you can tackle. Um, so I think this is another of those initiatives that could really make a big difference. And that's a lot of what I'm spending my time on. Yeah, it seems like there's a whole generation of, of younger researchers about, you know, about your age. Um, well, not just researchers, but bloggers and writers and reformers who are taking this very seriously, which is, I got to say, like, again, having dived into just how bad science can be when it's bad, uh, especially social psychology, it, it gives me a little bit of hope for the future that, you know, the young researchers of 2030 won't be making the same mistakes the young researchers of 2010 made, which I think will save us a lot of trouble in the long run. It's easy to get stuck on the problems that you see in any area of life, you know, and I'm I find myself doing that just like lots of other people do. Um, but one of the wonderful things about doing psychology and the social sciences in general, um, and actually it's, it's even broader than that, and there's a similar movement in medicine, is that we're actually making concrete changes and the, these concrete changes seem to be making a difference. So there's reason to hope. That's a very good note to end on. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. This was a great conversation. Thanks, Jessica.